Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our gospel reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed a star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the the rulers of Judah. For for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out and there ahead of them, went the star that they had seen in its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And upon entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, uh, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. We give you thanks for the gift of your word and your desire to be known in us and to us and through us. And we pray now that my words would be faithful to your word. Anything unfaithful, let it fall away. But if we hear your voice today, don't let us harden our hearts. Instead, draw us more and ever deeper into your story. For the sake of this world you love, we pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we've heard, Christmas is over uh, and we're in the season of Epiphany now. Um, And, you know, I often think that these kind of weeks, these seasons after are are in some ways more important uh, than the flashier holidays themselves. I mean, obviously, Christmas and Easter are essential for understanding Christian faith. Um, But I think it's these kind of liminal times, these in-between times when we start to work out what it all means, right? Where the rubber hits the road. How how is what we sang at Christmas supposed to find its way into our everyday lives? Now that the decorations are put away, what is different? In the weeks following Easter last year, we, we asked the question, what if it's true? Like, what if it's true that Jesus is raised from the dead? And what does that mean for us here and now? What does it mean for this world now and forever? 
And I, I think we could ask the same question in Epiphany, right? If what we celebrated throughout Christmas is true, if God is truly Emmanuel, God with us, if ours is the God who shows up the way that Jesus shows up, if his presence changes the world, if it is really good news of great joy for all the people, what difference does it make now? And you know, that basic claim that how Jesus shows up is how God shows up is what's at the heart of Epiphany. It's the season of uh, revealing and recognizing, the season of aha, as we just heard. I love that. It's the season in the church where we pay special attention to who and how Jesus is and what that means for us and for all things. And all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all do it a little bit different. They all have their own uh, slightly different versions of what happens after Jesus is born, each of which tells us, I think, part of the whole. You know, Mark leaps right into Jesus' baptism at around 30 years old. He, he is urgent to get to the heart of things. He, he gets to Holy Week in half the time of any of the other uh, um, gospel writers. Uh, Mark's favorite word is immediately, <laughs> this Greek word, euthus. Uh, you know, Jesus is always immediately doing something or immediately going somewhere. Luke, on the other hand, kind of slows things down and, and takes his time and locates Jesus in the distinctly Jewish context um, that he's born into. He, he tells us that Mary and Joseph did all the things that good Jewish parents were supposed to do for their boy. They, he also tells us the only story from Jesus' childhood uh, at age 12, which takes place in the context of the Passover, and uh, the action is at the, in the Jerusalem temple among the religious scholars. St. John, like usual, is a, is a whole other kettle of fish, and he dives deep into the mystery at the, the heart of the incarnation, the mystery at the heart of the, the Trinity, the word that was with God and was God, has moved into the neighborhood, has lived among us. And this year, um, it's lectionary year A, <laughs> and so this year our readings are mostly going to focus on the Gospel of Matthew. And it's interesting to me that the first thing that Matthew wants us to know is that Jesus' arrival among us signals a new political reality. I think in, the, in their own way, all the gospel writers affirm this. They agree about this. But Matthew kind of spells it out for us right from the get-go. The first sentence after Jesus is born tells us that dignitaries from other places came looking for the child who has been born, the king of the Jews. Uh, like a shift in power is underway. The birth of Jesus signals a new political reality, exactly what Zechariah and Mary and the angels sang about. In Matthew, it's the Magi, these wise men from the East, who let us in on the news. Now, the, the idea of mixing religion and politics may make some of us squirm, and judging by the headlines, that's probably the sane response. Uh, you know, the popularity of the heresy of Christian nationalism all over the world, including here in Canada increasingly, should make our stomachs turn. It's a vile twisting of the gospel. It is politics and religion gone very wrong. But even so, I, I think the, the question Christians should ask is not, should we be political, but how should we be political? The answer isn't just kind of withdrawing or ignoring, because the fact is that the politics is more than just the systems that govern our cities and, and provinces and country. It's the way we're in relationship with the world. If, if we're to follow the one whom the church is bold to say is the indication of how God is for this world, then how we are in the world really, really matters. 
I think in King Herod, it's fair to say we see a clear example how we ought not to be, right? His is the kind of politics that is in direct opposition to the kingdom of heaven, the way of the one who is equal with God, but didn't grasp with that power and instead willingly emptied himself for love's sake, as Paul puts it, isn't, can't be aligned with the way of the kings who maniacally and manically and fearfully grasp at power. I think it's really interesting that the thing that, that Matthew tells us most about Herod is that he's afraid, right? He's got all this power, but he's fundamentally afraid. When, we, when he heard that there was a child born to be king of the Jews, he was afraid, Matthew says, and all Jerusalem with him. And I've often wondered why all Jerusalem with him, right? It, it, it seems obvious why Herod was afraid. He'd already named himself king of the Jews, and he was doing all sorts of things to kind of solidify this uh, title. So this is a direct threat to his self-made position. But why are the people afraid of this one that's been born for them? And, and this is coded language, right? King of the Jews, they would have understood meant the Messiah, the, the Savior who was going to be about their freedom, who would lead them as a light to the nations, a, a witness to the goodwill and way of God for all people. You'd think there'd be a spontaneous parade to Bethlehem, whether Herod joined in or not. And, and I feel like there are at least two answers, probably more, and the, the truth lies somewhere in between, I suspect. One reason is that the people might rightly be afraid of Herod's response, right? When the powerful are threatened, they tend to get violent. You know, we just passed the anniversary of the January 6th events in the States uh, as Exhibit A, perhaps, but also witness the, the chaos in Mexico this week or the ongoing war in Ukraine as evidence of what happens when those who neurotically chase power find themselves threatened and opposed. You know, fear is a reasonable response to this kind of news. But I'm also wondering if, if the all in all of Jerusalem is, is mostly the, those who consider themselves to be more or less above all, right? The, the ones uh, privileged by proximity, the ones who matter, the ones who are actually with Herod. In, in other words, the ones for whom the current order of things is working out pretty, pretty well. I'm often reminded that Frederick Buechner says that the, the gospel is often bad news before it's good news, Right? And I think that's true in a variety of ways, but I think it can be especially true for those of us who are pretty fond of the world as we've made it for ourselves. If God is going to get the world that God wants, and if the way of Jesus is the way that things will be, this may cause problems for some of us if we're too comfortable with the way things are. Now, Jesus says things like, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it, but if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the kingdom, you'll get more life than you could possibly imagine. In the Gospel of Mark, the only person Jesus is said to explicitly love is, the, is a rich guy that he tells to give up everything and uh, give all the money to the poor. Now Mary's song in the Gospel of Luke looks forward to a time when the lofty will brought down, be brought down and the lowly raised up, and the rest of the Christian scriptures tend to affirm that hope. And it's too easy to say that, you know, like being rich is bad or that like what constitutes the lofty, though it can certainly be problematic. But, but you know, Herod and the wise men are both people of means. <laughs> but if what we're clinging to is our ability to make 
life for ourselves, to claim power for ourselves, to worry mostly about ourselves and the handful of people around us, well, we just don't have the staying power to maintain it. And you know, whoever dies with the most toys doesn't really win. But if we'll enter into the biblical reality, the, the, the holy promise that we are blessed to be a blessing, then we get to enter the promise that all that we are and have is meant to be bound up with the work of God who sets captives free and raises the dead. We get to use all that we are and have to love God and the world that God loves, which if we're not constantly worried about what we might lose in the process is a wildly exciting possibility. We get to mix our abundance with the abundantly far more of God, which may change our lives, but it will also change the world. You know, selfishness and greed of, of any kind are, are too narrow for the wideness of God's reign. And if we're committed to selfishness and greed, either implicitly or explicitly, we, we may not even know it, then, then the Magi's news is kind of a threat. This king is a threat. It, fear is the right response. So perhaps the first thing we can say about how Christians should be political is that we should be growing in fearlessness which is what happens when we loosen our grip on the way we, our idea of what life should be and cling to the one who is the Lord of all life. I mean, if that God is for us, who can be against us? If that God loves us with a perfect love, we can know that perfect love casts out all fear. And, you know, I think that part of the way that we loosen our grip on our ideas of how things ought to be is by paying attention to people whose experience of God and this world that God loves is different from our own, right? Outsiders can show us another possibility if we're prepared to listen and pay attention. And I want to suggest that the Magi do that for us. You know, they, they come from outside the story. They're Gentiles in Jewish territory. They're weird in the, in the Jerusalem world. And they teach us something about how people committed to the will and way of Jesus should be political. How we should relate to the principalities and powers on the one hand, but also how we should be in and for this world in our day-to-day -day lives. And I want, to, I want to name three more things. Fearlessness is the first one. The second is we're to be people of joy. And joy is not necessarily happiness, but a deep hopefulness. Right? A radical hopefulness down to the roots. The Magi have been seeking something and when they find it, they're overcome with joy. You know, we're to be growing as people of the promise that the way things are is not the way that they're always going to be. And the world of the power hungry and brutal and ultimately fearful is going to pass away. And we get to live for that right now. St. Paul says that we're to be the first fruits of what's to come. A sign, a, 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 a hint at what God's got in store for this world. The, the, we're, we're told that the joy of the Lord is our strength, that we get to rejoice in the Lord always, which Paul tells us to do from a prison cell so we can be pretty sure that happiness and joy are not the same thing. Right? The Magi show us that when we see Jesus, when we find the one who has come to find us, we discover an abundance that makes everything else pale in comparison. Right? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you, Jesus promises. Seek first the kingdom of God, and your world will expand with possibilities you could never have expected, and that you will never know if we don't risk the journey. 
We're to be people of fearlessness and joy, and we're to be people of reverence. The Magi kneel before this child and his teenage mom, and they pay him homage. They fall to their knees in adoration. And they seem to do it kind of unselfconsciously. They they pour out their gifts with extravagant generosity. They do it without worrying about what it looks like, how ridiculous it is to be worshiping this kid born in the backwoods of a vassal state on the edge of the Roman Empire, not in a palace, but in a working-class shack. We're to live lives of of reverence, of easy, unselfconscious reverence. And first of all, to Jesus, right? Which by worldly metrics is a ridiculous thing. We worship a crucified and traveling itinerant rabbi. And we're told that somehow how he is is how God is. And for many, that will seem foolish, right? Why worship a kid from the sticks when we could be in league with the Herods of the world who, who seem to have everything we're told we should want? Some will see it as foolish. For others, it'll be a stumbling block, a scandal, a, an affront to our sensibilities. How could this be how God is? We would not choose this God for ourselves. And yet the more we come to know him, the more we come to know the hope and peace and joy and love that is ours in him and through him, the more the Magi seem to have it right. Right? When we start to see Jesus as he is, we should be dropped to our knees in joyful reverence and praise. And when we do that, when we grow in love for him, we grow in love for the things that he loves, which is to say everything. God, ourselves, each other, creation, loving it with everything we've got. I'm reminded of St. Peter's instruction. You can find this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and following, where he says that we always need to be ready to give an account of what gives us hope, which implies living in a way that, uh, towards the world that, that might incline someone to ask about it, but to always do it with gentleness and reverence. <laughs> we sometimes don't get to that sentence. But always be prepared to give an account of what gives you hope, but always do it with gentleness and reverence. I think a lot of what passes for Christian politics doesn't seem particularly gentle or reverent these days. But if we're loving Jesus, we have to love what he loves, which means taking our neighbors, uh, even the ones we disagree with, even heaven help us our enemies, with a holy seriousness. Right? Each one of us, and each person in front of you and beside you, every person you'll meet today and for the rest of your life, the cashier at the store, the employee at your work, the student you teach, the child you raise, the prince and the pauper that you run into, each one a divine miracle. Someone whom God would cross heaven and earth just to be with. Someone whom Jesus is prepared to die for if it means that they can have life. Someone breathed into life by the very breath of God. If we know that, how can we not be people of reverence? We're to be people of fearlessness and joy and reverence. And finally, for today, we're to be people of creative defiance. (laughs) I like the language of of holy mischief. (laughs) That's the way of taking another road, right? Of going home by another way. The Magi resist the way of King Herod, probably at significant risk to themselves. If they get caught uh, deceiving the king, there's a better than good chance it's going to cost them their lives, and yet they're prepared to risk their lives for the sake of this little king. 
And I can't help but think of Jesus' call for us to take up our crosses and follow him. Now, I haven't always liked that command. I don't know about you. I haven't always liked the command to take up your cross. But it's worth understanding that, that crosses were reserved for political dissidents. Right? They were the, there were other forms of punishment for other crimes, but crucifixion was mostly reserved for those who posed a threat to the way that Rome said the world was. And so I think the call to take up our crosses isn't to embrace a death wish. It's just not to be afraid to sell out completely for another possibility, for the way of justice and love and right relationship. And to do so knowing that we do it in the company of the God who raises the dead, who is with us in life, in death, in life beyond death. In the company of Jesus, we're to be growing in fearlessness, knowing that we're caught up in a perfect love that casts out all fear. In the company of Jesus, we're to be people of joy, not chasing after temporary happiness, but living into a radical hopefulness. In the company of Jesus, we're to be people of reverence, learning to love God and the things God loves, which is to say every blessed thing, even us, with everything we've got. And we're to be people of creative defiance in the company of Jesus, learning to listen for the call to another road and trusting in the one who will lead us home. I'm going off book here. <laughs> it's all kind of vague. I think it's all true, but it's all kind of vague. And we need to do this. Part of it is... It's vague because we each figure it out on our own. God takes our lives seriously and particularly. But in a few weeks, we're gonna, I'm going to offer a, a, a course on prayer. Um, it's going to be an online video-based course. So if you can't come the night that we host it, you can still get in on the action. And I just want to make a pitch for this right now uh, because I think prayer is the only way that we do this, <laughs> Right? Paul says it's the spirit at work in us to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Right? It's the spirit at work in us to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And it's prayer that invites us, opens the door to that storehouse of God's spirit. Uh, we do this in relationship. We do it in the company of Jesus, not on our own, not making it up as we go along, but in the company of the one who knows us and loves us and the, and the one who's already done it, <laughs> the one who's led the way. And we, we build that relationship through prayer. So I want to I just, just a bit of a plug for a way that if you're interested, if you want, if you want to hear God's call to grow in fearlessness, to be someone of joy, to be people of reverence, to learn creative defiance, you might want to come and do this. This is what we're called to. May God give us grace and guts. Amen.